0: The very first spiritual experience in my life, or at least the very first that I can remember, uh, was back when I was a 10-year-old kid. Uh, I was at a summer camp called Camp Crossroads, the same camp that we're sending 30 of our uh, well-in-location Rose City kids uh, to later this summer, thanks to the special offering that so many of you generously contributed to a couple weeks ago, so way to go on that. Uh, For me, though, back when I was a 10-year-old kid, this summer camp had such a special significance. Uh, It was my first year at that camp, but it had such a special significance because the chapel speaker that week happened to have been my grade four teacher. And so going to this camp for the very first time, uh, I immediately had kind of a special bond or connection with the person who was going to be doing the, the teaching that week. Um, What I was shocked to learn, though, was how different his teaching was at this camp from what I'd been taught in school. And by different, I don't mean like he was hypocritical or anything or a different kind of person. He wasn't. But just the, the, the nature, the subject of what he was talking about, because, you know, for 10 months of my life, I was so used to him teaching me reading and writing and arithmetic. And now all of a sudden, he's teaching me about these spiritual things that I'd never really heard him teach on before. And... You know, he went into teaching about Jesus and how he wanted to save us from our sins. And then he built this whole case to help us understand that the reason he wants to save us from our sins is because we are sinners. And the reason he wants to save us from our sins as sinners, here was his big point, was because as sinners, we were going to hell. And I got to tell you, by about like the Tuesday or Wednesday of that week at summer camp, I remember very vividly lying on my top bunk in cabin number one at Camp Crossroads, feeling like I knew two fundamental things. Number one, that I was going to hell. And number two, if I didn't ask Jesus what he called into my heart in order to save me from that, There was no other way to escape that reality. And so on that night and probably, you know, every hour or so for the rest of that week at that first year of summer camp at Camp Crossroads, I asked Jesus into my heart to be my savior, to spare me from the shocking agony of this place called hell. For me, I would say that that was my very first kind of spiritual awakening or or spiritual experience. Now, through the course of my life, I had other kind of spiritual experiences or awakenings. Thankfully, uh, not many that were uh, necessarily that scary. Um, When I returned home from camp, uh, that was around the time that my family started uh, attending this church, not in this location, but uh, this this community. And I started to plug into a church that was trying to, as we learned last week, build into its next generation. And uh, so I was kind of growing up, along with a number of my uh, kind of Sunday school grade classmates in the Sunday school and children's feature kind of diet of investing into the next generation that our church was providing back then. And, you know, really kind of enjoyed my childhood growing up in this faith community. One of the things, though, that I have to say that I kind of learned, and it wasn't so much through the <clears throat> through the Bible stories of those, those Sunday school times per se, it was more through just kind of observation was that there were certain things that if you were part of a church or that you were a, a follower of Jesus, you really weren't supposed to do. You know, uh, for example, that the kids from our church who were part of my school, many of them weren't allowed to go to the dances that our school offered. You know, they weren't going to our graduation dance or things like that, and I... At first felt like that was kind of odd, but soon I realized kind of the commonality and I thought, ooh, maybe, maybe that's out of bounds. Maybe that's not something that you're supposed to do. I noticed that, you know, a number of them, you know, kind of hung out and had play dates or, you know, sleepovers or invited to their birthday. You know, predominantly, you know, other Sunday school and other kind of Church family kids—they didn't associate as commonly or as frequently with the other school kids—and I thought, "Oh, maybe that's, maybe that's not something that you're supposed to do." Um, we would play on uh, select sports teams, and some of the church kids and Sunday school kids weren't allowed to do that because some of those games and practices were on Sunday mornings. And so you notice that these really good sports athletes were not allowed to play on these teams, and you realized, "Oh, maybe that's." Maybe that's out of bounds too. Or I remember growing up, my parents were uh, hobby grape farmers. And so they grew grapes and sold them for juice and for wine making. And they would make wine on their own. And so we had wine in the house. And, you know, sometimes I would see the look on some of my Sunday school friends' faces when they would see these bottles and glasses of wine, or they would see beer in my parents' fridge. And you could just tell by the look on their face, kind of the shock and horror that this was probably another one of those things that you were not supposed to do. And so I I just want to be clear. (laughs) I loved my upbringing in this church and I am eternally and profusely grateful for the investment that many of you made into my uh, biblical and spiritual development in those days. But I have to say, I I did kind of, get the message that there were certain things that were supposedly out of bounds and kind of understood faith in a, the, the way the phrase goes, you're not supposed to drink or dance or smoke or chew or hang around with those who do. It was kind of that, that version of faith that I would say I understood as I was growing up uh, in our community. Then I would say that there was a <clears throat> kind of a third era of faith that I grew up in, or a third spiritual experience. And this wasn't because I had a whole lot of spirituality. This would have been during my university years. And uh, I was really, frankly, very lax in, in my spiritual life in those years. I've shared this many times that by the end of my university life, I flat out didn't like the person that I was becoming. And I was living in Toronto and, you know, not paying any attention really to anything spiritually. And so my lifestyle was increasingly reflecting someone who's living in Toronto and not paying attention to anything uh, about their spiritual life. But I had these spiritual experiences still because of some friends of mine. One was a, a teammate who happened to be a member of the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship Program uh, in my university. And the other was the manager that I worked for, who uh, oversaw our department. We were uh, lifeguards in a, in a hotel uh, in Toronto. And so between this manager and this, this teammate of mine, it was interesting because they both had the same kind of approach towards me, and they both had the same impact on me. It was interesting because both of them tried to consistently make me feel like I was a horrible person. And maybe it was just because they knew that I had a bit of a faith background. They knew that ever since I was a little kid, I had prayed that prayer and asked Jesus in my heart to be my savior. And, you know, it was just kind of a constant barrage. It was almost as if they made it their mission to always point out to me where I was disappointing God. And they weren't doing it in a hypocritical way. They didn't profess that they were perfect in any sense. And they weren't even really doing it in a judgmental way. They, they were actually doing it quite sincerely and, and in a way that they actually embraced and desired for themselves. Because they actually believed that the worst they could make me feel about myself the more they could motivate me to want to get serious with God. Because in their two lives, the way that it worked for them was when people made them feel bad about themselves, that's what actually motivated them to kind of trigger a greater degree of faith. And so for, <clears throat> for the better part of my growing up years— I would so th- say that those three versions of faith kind of described how I understood life with God. There was the be terrified of going to hell version of faith. There was the don't break these certain rules version of faith. And then there was this feel so bad about yourself that you're motivated to become better version of faith. And that was really what defined kind of my upbringing. Now for some of you, you might wonder how this freak of a faith person managed to end up becoming a pastor. Thankfully, there was actually a fourth version of faith that I was exposed to. And thankfully, uh, it was through many of you uh, in our community in my uh, later years. Once I had returned from university and moved home and plugged back in to this this church family. And uh, there are probably a number of different moments or experiences, so I'll just highlight a few. <clears throat> excuse me, one of them though was just this overarching sense of value that I felt. And maybe this value was in stark contrast to this, this degradation and shame that I was feeling from these Christians in university. But <clears throat> it was more than just a, hey, we're glad to see you on Sunday mornings. People like wanted to hang out with me and not just tell me how bad of a person I was. Um, Even more so, there was a couple who were overseeing our uh, church's youth ministry at the time, and they actually invited me in to be part of their youth leadership team. They knew my background. They knew how I'd been living in university, and they knew that I wanted to make changes, but they weren't about, you know, making me feel bad. They were about communicating that I might have value to contribute to this ministry, that I had value to them and maybe even value to God. You know, at the same time, I was understanding um, the purpose of what the church was for, that it was actually to usher in the realities of heaven on earth today. And I started to understand that a life of faith was in a lot of ways less about what happens when you die and more about what happens in your life on earth. And it was less about being saved from something and more about being saved for something. And it was about opportunity more than about anxiety. Probably the biggest or the most significant piece in that era was understanding the reality of the Holy Spirit the third person in that trinity that we focused on in some moments in our service last week. And I learned that through Jesus' resurrection, not just through his forgiving work with his death, through Jesus' resurrection, he made his risen Holy Spirit available. And that that risen Holy Spirit wanted to live within me and provide me with the very same resources that enabled Jesus to live the way he did on earth. And so I understood for the very first time that The life God was inviting me into, he wanted to actually provide the resources to empower and support me in, instead of just sitting up in heaven, disappointed when I faltered and failed and broke a bunch of those significant rules. And it became a life of empowerment, not just one of obligation. And again and again and again, it seemed like God was kind of reframing and recasting the vision of what a life with him was all about in a way that captivated my heart and in a way that engaged my spirit to want to go for it with him to a greater degree. Now, the point in all of this is that from kind of the different eras of my life, I experienced, I would say, four major eras of spirituality or four major kind of brands or versions of spirituality. And in each of those four brands or versions of spirituality, I would say that each of them probably presented itself as what a life with God was ultimately all about. I would say that in each case, those versions of spirituality were presented as the gospel of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. What I've learned though since then in trying to grow in my faith over the years and for the last two decades being part of facilitating faith for other people are really two fundamental dynamics. Number one, I've learned that those four... Versions of faith are still as alive and kicking today as they were in any one of those eras in the course of my life growing up. That there are actually multiple versions of how people understand the gospel and what a life with God is ultimately all about. At the same time, and this is the more contentious one, I have learned over the years that from the Bible's perspective, From the perspective of the heart of God. From the perspective of the life of Jesus. And from the perspective of the teaching of the New Testament. Only one of those versions is actually true. Only one of those versions actually represents the big idea of the Bible and the essence of the nature of God and the core of the life and message of Jesus and the fundamentals of the teaching of the New Testament. Only one. The other three are what I would refer to in today's terminology as fake news. And what we're going to spend the next four weeks on is exactly this. We are going to unpack what the scriptures say about why some of these versions of what a life with God is all about are actually false. What it is about what the Bible teaches that debunks them and makes them fake news instead of the true gospel, while at the same time anchoring ourselves in the truth of what the Bible teaches about what a life with Jesus is all about. Today, thankfully, we're going to start on the positive end, and we're going to start with the true gospel. And so we're going to dive in there, first of all, to a passage in 1 John chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, you can follow along where it says there, beginning in verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God, and whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. At its core, as a starting point, We need to center our understanding of all things spiritual from the Bible's perspective on the reality that at its core, the person of God is described fundamentally as love. That most core to the character of God is the defining attribute of love. On top of that, it's core to the work of Jesus. Keep reading. In verse 9, it says, This is how God showed his love among us. Excuse me. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins both the nature and essence and character of God and the work and the teaching and life of Jesus Christ can be summarized in one word, the word love. And when it comes to the good news of the message of Jesus that the Bible teaches that we're invited into, if you're taking notes, I would summarize it this way, that we are invited, First John teaches this, but we'll look at other places too, We are invited into a life of love through an act of love by a God of love. It's nothing more complicated than that. At its core, that is the ultimate good news of the Bible. That we are invited into a life of love through an act of love in Jesus by a God of love whose fundamental characteristic is love. Now, if you're looking for a little bit more biblical backbone than just one random passage, appreciate that this is core to everything that Jesus taught. In fact, one day someone said, hey, based on all the other rules that we're exposed to, all the other things that we're trying to obey, how would you summarize them or prioritize them? Jesus responded this way in Matthew chapter 22. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first And greatest commandment and the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments in Jesus day they believed in 613 Jewish laws they said which of them are the most important he says there are really two in a sense there are one there's one but it has two dimensions to it to love God with everything that you've got and to love people and your neighbor as yourself. It's a love-based prioritization and a love-based invitation to faith that Jesus ultimately prioritized. And when he prioritized this, understand... That he wasn't just ranking these two laws, you know, slightly above the other 611 or so. Jesus was completely overhauling and reframing how people fundamentally understood their life of faith. Look what it says in John chapter 13. He says, there are a new command I give you, a new framework. He says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. His point is that whatever priority or whatever focus or whatever value system you had in your faith construct up until now, I want to give you a new one, one that is primarily oriented around and anchored in the value of love. Now you read on after the life and teaching of Jesus and the New Testament authors echo this very same sentiment. Look at what the apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter five and verse six. He says there that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Any other prioritization or value grid that you could bring to your life of faith doesn't hold up to the value of faith expressing itself in love. And later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says the opposite, that anything else that you would bring that lacks love has no value. He says there in verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, I can fathom all the mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. He says you can perform all kinds of spiritual gymnastics, but at the end of the day, if you lack love, you have no spiritual value whatsoever because he's reframing all of the prioritization and all of the value system of a faith in Jesus Christ around one thing, the value of love. And at the end of the day, that's the difference between the true gospel and this fake news or these false versions of the gospel. It's not so much the values that they seek to represent. It's the organization and prioritization of those values. Because in each of those other ways, each of those other claims, you know, that, that more than anything, you need to be terrified of hell. Or more than anything, you can't fundamentally break certain rules. Or more than anything, you need to feel terrible about yourself in order to feel better about uh, a life with God. You know, if those are the primary values, they miss out on the primary value of love and they make what are primary values, things that are not primary values to God. In fact, they make values that against the law of love actually become subordinate, if not eradicated. Take a look at what some of the scriptures teach. For example, in first John four, when it comes to that, what I would call fear based gospel of just being terrified of your eternity. In verse 18, it says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. The invitation of Jesus is not primarily about making you terrified enough to follow him. It's about making you aware of his love for you and being captivated by that. Similarly, to a person who thinks that the number one value in a life of faith is to try to stay in line with and obey all the rules. Look at what it teaches in Romans uh, chapter 13. It says there, Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of all the law. You know, rather than try to keep up with 613 or 10,000 or whatever, whatever kind of key rules are that you think you can't break. The Bible says, instead, you're to focus on love because love is the fulfillment of everything that God would have for your life. Love actually trumps trying to obey and stay in line with all the rules that you think might matter. Now, think again about what I would call the shame-based gospel, the one that believes that You know, in order for us to be motivated to turn to God, we've got to feel really bad about ourselves. Romans chapter 8, 1 teaches this. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus and you have responded to his work of love as a gift from a God of love by trying to live a life of love and faith in him, there is now no condemnation. Shame has no place in a life with God that is fundamentally defined by a gospel of love. And so, I, so I, I hope that you're starting to see the picture of why these alternative versions of what people may present as the gospel are actually more fake news than gospel. Because they misprioritize certain values as the ultimate values that God cares about when in reality, compared to the value of love, they aren't. They don't hold up to the same biblical priority as the value of love. Take a look at another example in 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter says, above all, he says, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Same idea as Romans, you know, love kind of fulfilling the law. He says, love covers a multitude of sins. Notice here (coughs) that he begins this by saying, above all, above all. When a biblical writer says above all, they're using that phrase because of everything else they're going to teach you, they want this to be highlighted. They want this to be bolded, italicized, or underlined for this to be, you know, valued more than the other stuff that they're teaching. Go as kind of a a homework exercise and do a biblical search of the term above all and ask yourself where in the Bible it produces that phrase. How many times biblical writers try to highlight the idea of something being above all? Never will you find someone in the Bible saying above all, you should be terrified of the tormenting fate that you have in hell. Nowhere will you find that, that you should be terrified of hell above all. Nowhere you will you find someone say, above all, don't break such and such a rule. You just won't find it in the scriptures. And nowhere will you find, above all, your life is to feel bad about how wretched a person you are and how much you've disappointed God in hopes that you'll turn and want to please God to a greater degree. Nowhere will you find that. You want to know why? Because a fear-based gospel and a rules-based gospel And a shame-based gospel are fake news. They are not the gospel. They are not the invitation to a life of love through a work of love from a God of love. They are not a love-based gospel. Now, there might be some of you here today who resonate with some of those values from some of those alternative gospels or maybe have grown up even believing in them as the gospel and are wondering well what about those values because i understand that those values are in scripture and and for sure those alternative views of the gospel wouldn't rule out the value that god is love or that jesus taught on love they wouldn't scrub out those verses similarly i don't want you to think that a love-based gospel necessarily Necessarily scrubs out those verses that you would be believe are key to those alternative versions of the gospel. You know, for example, we're to live with a reverence for God and we're to live the scriptures teach with an understanding of the consequences of our choices here on earth for all eternity. There are stakes to how we live our lives on earth. You know, the, in, in, a, in a love-based gospel, you know, it matters in not just honoring God, but in obeying God and expressing the way that we love him by seeking to live out his design and his ideals. And for sure, God gives us the gift in love of his Holy Spirit, who at times convicts us, you know, whether we know it or not, and, and kind of tweaks our conscience so that we can understand where we drift from his design as a way of helping and supporting us to live more like him out of love. So I don't want to necessarily scrub out the verses that have been sacred to you and say those verses or those biblical ideals don't matter. What I want to do today, though, is the same thing that I believe Jesus came to earth to do, and that was to offer a fundamental reframing of how you package and organize and categorize and ultimately prioritize certain ideals and values in the Bible And in the teaching of Jesus and of the teaching of the New Testament, so that you can properly understand what is core to the heart of God and what is not. And ultimately, the way that God is ultimately inviting people into a life with him and the way that he isn't. At the end of the day, it's not which of these is in the Bible or isn't. It's which of these is framed or which of these is prioritized more true to the heart of God and which isn't. I heard it described in kind of a a metaphor recently as the difference between fences and a well. The difference between fences and a well. The technical term is a bounded approach or a centered approach if you're a theology type. And the difference between fences and a well... <clears throat> is simply the, the philosophy or the approach with which they keep people or animals close to them. You know, The whole idea of both of those approaches is to keep people close to the center. But by building fences, the thought is you keep people or things or animals close to the center by ensuring that they can't go too far by building the fence. By building the well and creating a wellspring of life, you inherently keep them close to the center by making them want to draw water from the well. And in a sort of metaphor, that's the difference between the, uh, the, the fear-based and the rules-based and the shame-based gospels. Those are set up as spiritual systems that serve as fences, Where the love-based gospel is something that Jesus wanted to reframe and offer to people as a well. As a source of life and vitality that can revolutionize people's lives and experiences and ultimately their eternities. Gang, that's why we believe that this next month will be so significant as we dig in to subsequent versions of the gospel and understand how the teachings of Jesus and of the Bible fundamentally debunk them, fundamentally declare them as fake news and in a very practical way learn how to reframe our own values and our own priorities around a love-based gospel. I believe that it will not only reframe how we understand God, relate to God, know God, serve God, and share God. I believe that it will fundamentally redefine how we grow spiritually. It'll redefine how we understand the purpose of the church and what it means to be part of it, and even redefine some of the very most practical things about how we live our lives. Things like, you know, what defines a good or bad day? Those are different according to which gospel you ultimately live for. You know, things like what our goals in life are. Those are different according to which gospel (coughs) you ascribe to. You know, how about um, the invitation or the way that we relate to other people? Those are different according to which gospel you ascribe to. Or the way that we parent or the way that we invest in the next generation, which we learned last week, we all have a role to play in. Those are all different according to which gospel you ascribe to. And the reason I believe that this series will be so significant is because as a personal le- at a personal level, as I shared earlier today, I've experienced all of these versions of the gospel. I've been the product at different times of a fear-based gospel. I know what it does. I know how you react to it. I know what it provides and what it doesn't provide. I've been a product in some different ways of a rules-based gospel. I know it's upsides, I guess, but I know it's downsides. I know it's limitations. I've been the product of a shame-based gospel. And I know what it motivates you to do and what it motivates you to not do. And thankfully, I've been been exposed to a love-based gospel. And I know what it's like to understand that God loves you and Jesus died for you and his Holy Spirit wants to live in you to invite you into a life of love made possible through a work, an act of love, through a God of love. I know what that means. And more to the point, I think this series is going to be so significant because not only have I experienced those things, I'm guilty of actually sharing those alternative versions of the gospel even through my life today. I haven't fully, completely kind of purified myself of all those gospels, and I'm sure you haven't either. And so for all of us, there's going to be a tremendous opportunity to experience so much more of what God has for us as we debunk these versions of fake news and instead embrace the true good news of the gospel of love of Jesus Christ. If you're still at the point where you think, oh, this doesn't really matter, I'll give you one more challenge for homework. Ask your friends who aren't part of a life of faith, who aren't part of a church, why they're currently not part of a life of faith or part of a church and see what they say. Because <clears throat> as Greg Boyd says in his book, Repenting of Religion, he says, how much harm has been done to the church and to the cause of Jesus Christ, because Christians have placed other considerations alongside or above the command to love as God loves. In the name of truth, Christians in the past have sometimes destroyed people, even physically torturing and murdering them. In the name of holiness, Christians have often pushed away and shamed those who don't meet their standard, creating their own little holiness club to which struggling sinners need not apply. And then in in the name of correct biblical doctrine, Christians have frequently destroyed the unity of the body of Christ, refusing to minister or worship together because of the doctrinal differences, sometimes viciously attacking those who disagree with them. Gang, I think that this month we can embark on what may be the single most significant month of messages that we ever have before. And if you have a friend that's outside of a life of faith and hasn't really been interested in faith or church, I would encourage you to share this message video with them and invite them to consider that maybe there's an alternative version of the gospel that they've never been exposed to before. Maybe they've only ever always been exposed to fake news and maybe there's something waiting for them that could revolutionize their lives because it's revolutionized my life and I know that it can revolutionize yours. And so I hope that you're excited to buckle your seatbelt for this next month, including the next three weeks and Canada Day. As we not only debunk these versions of fake news and these false gospels, but at the end of the day and each week, week in and week out, celebrate the love-based gospel of Jesus Christ. That at the end of the day, what God invites us into is a life of love made possible by an act of love as a gift from a God of love. Let's pray together. God, I'm excited for this next month and where you want to take us, what you want to teach us, and how you want to grow us. And I just pray by your spirit right now that you would speak to each one of our hearts and help us to separate truth from false. Help us to separate what we may have believed ultimately mattered to you from what ultimately matters to you and to be able to begin to reframe and recategorize and reprioritize all of the values and all the ideas and all the teachings and things that we see in the Bible and in Jesus into the framework of the gospel of love that you have ultimately provided to us. Will you begin to do that transformational work in our spirits now, in our minds, in our hearts, in our relationships and in our lives, And over the course of this month, make us different people, make us different community, and make us a gift of love to the watching world. We thank you for this incredible adventure that we can be on together, and we look forward to watching you work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.